Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. You know, the word Phytotron is such a cool name for something that, when you think about it, is really just a high-tech greenhouse. But don't be fooled by that. They were everywhere in the Cold War, in agriculture, in spaceflight. The Phytotron is kind of like the Forrest Gump of plant biology. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today I talk with David Munns, professor of history at John Jay College, about his new book, Engineering the Environment, Phytotrons and the Quest for Climate Control in the Cold War. But we also talk about Matt Damon, shitting in space, and growing pot in your dorm room. David Munns, welcome to Time to Eat the Dogs. Thank you kindly for having me. So what is a phytotron? A phytotron is the most important scientific device no one's ever heard of. (laughs) They are incredibly unknown in the history of science and technology, even though they at one time were quite famous. Technically, a phytotron was any kind of large-scale climate-controlled laboratory that usually involved a number of rooms, climate-controlled rooms, either individually or collectively, put side by side, then altered and held environmental parameters constant and just changed one at a time. Uh, so in the, uh, the original one in Caltech, for instance, they had a room which was at 30 degrees Celsius next door to a room that was at 27 degrees Celsius next door to a room that's at 24 degrees Celsius. And they wanted to test in the phytotron, which was the whole thing, the various ways in which plants responded to differing environmental conditions and the only way they, they thought they could mm-hmm. do that was by holding all of the environmental conditions or parameters constant and then changing them one at a time. I got the impression from your book that there was a, a fight of sorts between geneticists who were doing all this work on genes and plant physiologists who were trying, waving their hands and trying to tell people that they were missing uh, a, a vital vital part of the equation when it comes to understanding plants. 
Yeah, I think fight might be a little strong, as it turns out. Um, one would like to think that there was a fight, because that would make for a much better story. <laughs> you know, a knockdown, what I constantly was looking for, again, in the example of the first Phytotron at Caltech, what one expected to find, of course, was a sort of knockdown fight between Fritz Went, the uh, famed Dutch plant physiologist who discovered the the auxins, the, the plant, plant hormones, and Max Delbruck, who, of course, is at Caltech at the exact same time, working on biophysics, which becomes molecular biology, which becomes, you know, modern day science of biology. And I expected these two to sort of clash. And as it turns out, they probably just ignored one another, realistically. They, they very much took differing but complementary paths to the science of life. And I think that they were really had very different visions, mm -hmm. which did not overlap. But certainly from the plant physiologist's point of view, they very much thought that the, that the geneticists had, had already done the work. They thought, that's great. They, um, the geneticists had figured out what chromosomes are. They'd figured out laws of hereditary. They'd figured out sort of the, the minor things that allowed genetic information to be passed down from one generation to another. From, from their point of view in the 40s and 50s, that appeared to be all but complete. They didn't really see what else you would be getting out of that. Mm -hmm. What needed to be worked on was, in fact, the other end of the plant, and that was, and in a very famous, they literally wrote it as an equation, which was the phenotype equals the genotype plus the environment. Phenotype being the way that an organism expresses traits as it matures. As it, as it matures. And so if you're looking at a, at a whole plant, the tomato plant was, was one of the classic model organisms for a time, to see what the tomato plant is going to look like in the end, yes, you've got all of this genetics and hereditary material, which now expresses in the genotype. And now we need to add on to it how the environment affects development over the lifespan of the, of the plant itself. So I would imagine that pretty much everybody by the early 20th century, I mean, even boy, uh, you know, people who don't consider themselves biologists are aware of these issues of nature and nurture. So are the different groups arguing over matters of degree when it comes to how do you understand a plant? Or is this more profound than that? The different groups are sort of doing their own thing. There's certainly a disciplinary battle going on. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think the history of biology has done, you know, a, a lot of its work over the last 40 years has been to sort of figure out where early genetics comes from, the response to Darwin, the Darwinian revolution, the rediscovery of, of Mendel, all of those, you know, those classic hotspots. Uh -huh. um, and then to figure out where this new discipline, very experimental, about trying to figure out what genes are and mm -hmm. what they mean and how they are transmitted and what they do. And, you know, uh, any, any number of works have really, have really done that. At the same time, and where I think the book makes one of its most significant interventions, is that complementary to all of that work, complementary to the discipline of genetics writ large, was also the discipline of plant physiology, mm -hmm. which hasn't gotten anything like the attention within the history of biology or the history of science that its sort of complementary other half has gotten. And 
plant physiologists were aware of this. They were aware of this even in the nineteen in the nineteen fifties. Um, there was a great it was a great little moment I found from uh, the plant physiologists just after World War II, and they're going plant physiology is probably the most important of the biological sciences. It's the one that really matters because that's where all the great progress is going to come and we can really intervene in ways that the geneticists just can't. We can intervene because we can now construct environments. We can now build them. And so we can test these things in a way that you really can't test genes. I'm thinking back to the uh, science projects that I was doing in seventh and eighth grade where, <laughs> you know, one of the popular ones was for a kid to plant, you know, six corn plants, stick one of them in the closet, not give the other one water, uh, mm. let the other one, you know, be out in the garage. And then at the end of uh, two weeks to, you know, come up with some kind of conclusion about it. But one of the things that struck me about your book was that this was not, uh, I think the way you describe it is modifying the environment doesn't give you some kind of linear equation of, of you know, stick more light, you know, give this plant more light, it does better, that there's there are these very uh, tricky feedback loops, right, yeah. that happen with the genetics of a plant. Could you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So when Fritz went and then a guy by the name of Lloyd Evans, who ends up moving to Australia... Um, where sort of one of the big phytotrons were built and another a guy that I uh, have to do more research on, Pierre Chouard, who developed mm -hmm. uh, Le Grand Phytotron um, in, in France. Of course, it's called Le Grand Phytotron. What else would it be called? You know, these are three of some of the largest institutions, scientific institutions that are built in the immediate sort of post-war period. You know, we, we're used to knowing that science expands dramatically, but, but this kind of science expansion seems to have just sort of not been mentioned anywhere near enough. And so what happens is that all these guys are, are working on this, and they think at the beginning that it is a very reductionist process. So there's a very similar story, I think, at the, at the outset between origins of molecular biology and origins of phytotronics, as some people will call it in the end, which is that if you can establish the exact environmental parameters under which plants grow best, then all you have to do is keep the genes constant, um, which is easier to do for plants than it is to do for lots of other things, and you keep growing it. And indeed, um, modern hydroponics largely comes from this. You, you sim we simply grow food under hydroponics conditions at the best growing position. So the, uh, the famous mm -hmm. example was uh, the potato, uh, which was that if you grow Idaho potatoes and you grow them in 25 degrees Celsius, they grow at the maximum rate. They, if you grow them at 26, mm -hmm. they grow slightly less slowly. If you grow them at 40, 24 degrees Celsius, they grow slightly more slowly. Uh, but if you grow them at 25, you get the maximum growth you're going to get out of Idaho. But if you grow Kennebec potatoes, you they actually need to be grown at 23 degrees Celsius. If you grow them at 24 or 25, they actually grow less. I mean, it seems to me what you're talking about, it would be of an immense uh, practical application to farmers growing potatoes. Are there people who are varying the environmental conditions to actually figure out genetic causes of 
these feedback loops? Or, I mean, I guess uh, the, the question differently phrased is, what were people doing with the science they were getting out of the phytotrons? There was a lot of hope, <laughs> as far as I can work out, about what they were going to do with the science of the phytotron. Yeah. And certainly one of, the, one of the more interesting facets is that certainly agricultural industry, which of course is, is a very big feature and is sort of the almost silent partner in the book, I think, is that the book sort of talks about academic institutions. It talks about academic scientists. But behind them um, and around them, are what we would now call, you know, the the sort of the the mass agricultural corporations, and so the most sort of famous is um, uh, the Campbell Soup Company, who wanted to grow tomatoes in the more extreme climates of the American Southwest, and so they they supported a multi million dollar expansion of the Caltech Phytotron to test these new varieties and new environmental conditions to try and come up with a tomato that would survive in New Mexico or Arizona and would flourish under those mm-hmm. kinds of environmental conditions. And they only met with limited success. As far as I'm, as far as I'm aware, <laughs> they actually never really pull it off. But they're putting a lot of effort into this. Um, in Australia, uh, it's sugarcane, Colonial Sugar Refinery, the larger, one of the largest sugar companies in the world, is building its own phytotron in Australia. Uh, to do this. Uh, the rice industry is doing this in Southeast Asia, and the tobacco industry, very famously, um, in North Carolina, uh, sponsors a, a, its own phytotron, essentially, to look, at, to look at these kinds of conditions for tobacco plants. I mean, this must have made some scientists feel rather nervous, right? Because, uh, as you write in your book, um, there had been a real kind of status that had been uh, attached to doing pure research, uh, where you're trying to decode the laws of nature. And especially, I'm sure that many of these um, scientists are, as you were saying, looking at physicists with their cyclotrons coming up with new subatomic particles. And here they have the Tobacco Research Council or whatever saying, can you grow us bigger plants? Um, Can you talk about that tension? So to return to sort of the, the feedback, I think, I think the idea of feedback in science then works in the sort of at these multiple levels. So in a practical sense, when they're trying to grow any plant um, under exacting conditions, what they figure out is that there is a feedback system that exists not only between the genes and its environments, that each, inf- each inflects upon the other. But they're also within mm-hmm. each of the environmental parameters itself, um, that heat, temperature, light, humidity, uh, length of day, these things actually interact with each other mm-hmm. in various surprising ways. And so then they, the later generations constantly try to figure out how these complicated and literally complex feedback relationships work. At the same time, there's also feedback between various sciences. So the idea is that hmm. the thing is called a phytotron. Um, like it's not, it's not just called a plant research laboratory. It's not called, yeah. uh, it's not called an experimental station. It's, it's literally called a phytotron. And this is sort of one of the, it's one of those moments, I think, where you go that what's going on here resonates at a far more significant level than just sort of 
academic debates or even notions about what is nature and how we integrate. This is about, this is really about the identity of scientists in the post-war period and what you do with that and what, and what it looks like mm-hmm. in the world that physics has made in the wake of World War II. And the adoption and the widespread adoption of the word phytotron, and indeed of all the other trons, <laughs> signals, I think, that there's really a, an intense feedback that we, we tend to look at the creation of physics in the post-war period as it's the physicists. They, they are the heroes. They've done it. But there's a feedback there as well. The biologists who are replicating or attempting to replicate what they see as the successes of physics are also feeding back into physics's own success. Huh. That this that this I think is an an important um, aspect of of the phytotron phytotron story that is in fact as much about the allure and the image that physics has created and how that is sustained over time. So I was thinking about these parallels you were making to the amazing physics work uh, that's being done in cyclotrons yeah. and in other particle colliders. And then this phytotron, which, as you said, is in this kind of feedback loop. People are looking to physics for this, but that the phytotrons are actually really cooler looking than the cyclotrons, <laughs> I think. I mean, they're just, they're just way cooler. I mean, like the, the climatron, which you have an image of in your book, uh, it really looks like a spaceship. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, so many, and so many symbols. I mean, honestly, this is too much information, I think, for the podcast. Mm. But when, you, when I read your book cover and it was about phytotrons, I thought instantly of the phototron, which my girlfriend grew pot in her dorm closet. Excellent. College. Excellent. Um, Excellent. And uh, I, so I kind of laughed about that and then thought, after reading your book, like, actually, these are really connected <laughs> um, at, this, at this second level that you're talking about, the, all of the symbolic. So can you talk just about what place you think that has in um, American or even international society, the, the symbol of the, these things? Yeah. So when I first encountered this, it was this strange moment of, um, of you know, what is a phytotron? That was literally my question. Um, that I sent off to uh, to Nick Rasmussen, who was my former advisor, and you know he filled me in on a couple of the the details, and it 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 just resonated with me because these the phytotron seemed such this bizarre word that had come out of somewhere, and I didn't really know where, um, but it really did resonate with the it really did resonate with the culture of Cold War society and not just cold war america the largest phytotron in the world is actually the grand phytotron in the soviet union which i only mentioned briefly in the book because i know practically nothing about it and i'm desperate to find someone with uh, with russian language skills who can go and do the research for me um the second largest um is the one in australia and then the third largest being the one in in france with the fourth largest being the, the Grand National Phytotron, um, which is the University of Wisconsin at Madison, which is actually was renamed the Biotron. But the Americans invented it. The first Phytotron was, was at Caltech. And what I think they got out of this was that they got this, this great sense. We, someone was talking about this. It's too easy to forget just how optimistic the sort of late 1940s and 1950s really were. They were this great optimistic modernist time, um, and we, mm-hmm. you know, in the 
in the wake of the sort of the 1970s and 80s, we, we look back on that and go, no, they were all very naive. Um, but at the time, embracing modernist ideals about absolute control over the physical world um, is not an unreasonable expectation that this is just something we really can do. And if it means you have to spend tens of millions of dollars on air conditioning systems and lighting systems and new fluorescent tubes, then that's just what you're going to have to do. <laughs> um, that's how you get into it. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. And that gets attached, the uh, the optimism you're talking about with the Phytotron, that gets attached to the other massively optimistic program in the Cold War, which is the space the space age. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, I know that this is something that you are digging into with your next book, but maybe you could talk a little about that. Again, this is, this is one of those uh, surprising moments that just lurches your research off in a new direction. When I, mm-hmm. when I gave a talk on phytotrons um, to a crowd in Germany, there was the very famous, of course, a historian of photosynthesis, Karen Nicholson, who asked me about the algatron. She'd come across the algatron at one point. Um, and I'm going, I don't know anything about the algatron. And so six months later, I now know disturbingly too much about the algatron, <laughs> which was a, um, it was originally, I think it was designed for sort of uh, to try and use and grow algae under controlled environmental conditions so that algae could be used as a food source. Uh, hunger is, is really mm-hmm. driving a lot of this, the fear of worldwide hunger, driving phytotrons as much as the algatron. But in the end, it gets used as a waste recycling system, as a proposed waste recycling system uh, for the space program that quite literally the astronauts were supposed to fly up there with a rotating drum of illuminated algae, which you would pee on, and that would feed the algae. And then the algae would recycle your urine um, back as water and recycle your carbon dioxide back as oxygen. Um, And in the most elaborate version that never came off, um, you were, of course, supposed to harvest the algae every 12 hours because that's how long algae lives for. And you could use it as a protein source. So how much was the um, the interest in creating a kind of viable, completely closed, self-sustaining environment space coming up against uh, people, you know, essentially eating their own crap? Yeah, <laughs> it, it's really it's really butting heads with that. Um, there's, <laughs> there's actually a, uh, a line from uh, one of the directors of the, of the human space program very early on. This is like 1963. And he he goes that we have eliminated the problem of elimination by eliminating it. Um, <laughs> and what he meant by that was that the problem of what does an astronaut do when they go in space, or more accurately, what do you do with it once you have it <laughs> in space yeah. from the astronaut? The, the easiest way to get around that problem is simply to make the flights so short that you don't have to deal with the problem. Very famously, it's just in the the latest biography by Scott Kelly, every astronaut who goes up now to the International Space Station has to stop just short of the launch pad in in Russia, in Kazakhstan. Um, And they have to pee on the back tire of the bus that they're driving in, (laughs) because that's what Yuri Gagarin did. Yuri Gagarin 
did this. He knew he was going to be up there for a couple of hours. And so he just, he just went before he got launched. And this is what every astronaut now has to do as well, including the ladies, which is an interesting story. And so the upshot is that early space flights are actually so short that they don't worry too much about it. They can, they can just sort of get around the problem. It's only when they're anticipating that space flights are going to become longer and longer that this starts to become a major problem. But what happens is that the manned, for the Americans anyway, the manned space program simply ends. Apollo mm-hmm. becomes space lab. Space lab ends. The space shuttle, again, these are short-term short-term journeys into space. The, the, kinds of, the kinds of times that would make it worthwhile, because this is a very complicated system of trying to launch bioregenerative yeah. algae ponds into space, is at least in the order of months. Unless you're going to be spending at least months in space, it's just not worth the effort. In the end, it's easier just to collect astronauts' crap via any kind of containment mechanism and simply put it in a bag and put it into the trash and return it all to Earth, which is, in fact, what they do. Um, This is what they still do. Only in the later versions of the International Space Station have some urine recycling. It's now in place. Um, But solid waste recycling is still not there at all. That is not. That's not done. But the Soviet Union did a lot more work on this. They actually spent much more time in space through the 1970s and 1980s than the Americans did. Of course, all of this leads uh, everyone to know what your review of uh, Matt Damon in The Martian. Oh, well, no. Um, a, everyone loves a shirtless Matt Damon. So that's <laughs> that's great. Uh, if only I could get him for the cover of my next book. But it's also that, you know, um, Matt Damon, of course, is who we can go. But it's, it's Andy Weir. Um, and his novel, The Martian, which is what uh-huh. the movie was based on, just did a fantastic job of the sort of reality of living on, in his case, Mars, or even the reality of living in space. That the reality, and this is, uh, it came through um, this work that that I'm now doing with, with Karen Nicholson on these sort of closed environment, the building of these closed environmental systems for space habitation is that it's too easy to look at that, to look at space. And Freeman Dyson was a classic example, which was, we're going to have so much nuclear power. We're just going to have rooms that are refrigerators and we're all going to have all this frozen beef and we're just going to be eating roast beef as we journey to Alpha Centauri or wherever we're going. It's that kind of it's that kind of idealism about this sort of energy abundance. Mm-hmm. But as every sort of NASA astronaut knew, and every life scientist and engineer working within the space programs knew, is that space is not about abundance at all. It's an incredibly harsh environment, um, and to make life sustainable and habitable in a space environment means that you have to make some fairly confronting decisions about what you do with your waste. Because in space, it isn't really waste. It isn't just something you can throw away. They are nutrients, which are, as Mary Douglas would famously say, they're just nutrients out of place. They're they're nutrients which have to be recycled back, which is why the Algatron was such a, it really worked for them. The Algatron took what humans would consider to be waste, carbon dioxide, and urine and shit, literally. And from an algae's point of view, 
they are nutrients. That's food. They want to breathe in carbon dioxide. They want to take in nitrogen. They want to take in organic matter. And they want to excrete oxygen yeah. and water, which from their point of view is waste. And once you decenter the human in your life stories, once you decenter that it's all about and only about the human, you start to see the engineering problems that, that these guys are running up against when they're trying to build this. They're trying to build a life support system, which has humans at its center, because mm-hmm. uh, it's sort of who's going to pay for it. But it's still a life support system. And again, they're trying to get into how are humans connected not only to their environment in these very complicated feedback mechanisms, but also to other organisms. And how many organisms do you really need to take up there to completely close nutrient, material, and energy loops so that you're not just throwing a lot of material out the back door? You know, there's a, um, there's a kind of irony to uh, your project uh, reading the first chapters of it where people are coming up with this cyclotron as essentially a way of creating an artificial environment like, hey, we don't even need to do field research anymore. We can do it all in our room. Mm. And then by the late chapters or or even when you're talking about your next project, it's like, well, yeah, but now we're going to put the room on a rocket and blast it into space. Yeah. And that's essentially going to be the environment we explore with. I mean, it's just very, <laughs> very funny. Uh, no, yeah, it's it's great, um, and in and in some respects, uh, I I think I think that's true, and that space as being you know an environment which we are which humans are just very unfamiliar with, and you know reading Scott Kelly's you know um, excellent memoir that just came out, um, he just completed Scott Kelly was the, the astronaut on the International yep. Space Station who completed mm-hmm. um, a year in space, and very famously was a twin to return us to that. A competition between genetics and environment. One of the reasons he was selected is he has a twin brother. And so they were both monitored yeah. for what is the environmental effects on a similar organism, keeping the genetics constant and seeing what the environmental effects are. So yeah. this kind of exploratory work is still ongoing. This kind of complementary um, work between the science of let's say, genetics or molecular biology on the one hand, but also whole organism and environmental work on the other, and that those two things need to speak to each other far more than I think they're sort of yeah. popularly, they're popularly assumed to do. Um, that, that, oh, yes, no, once we all have our genetically tailored um, medical cures for any disease you can think of, that's the end of the story. Well, no, it's not, as it turns out, um, because those things will always exist within environments, within complicated cells, which are within complicated bodies, which are within complicated environments, all of which interact with each other. David Munns, thank you for talking to me today. Uh, no worries at all. Thank you for having me on the program. That's our show for today. Our theme music was composed by Zabrat. If you want to listen to other episodes of Time to Eat the Dogs, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a few moments to rate and review it. I'd like to hear what you think. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to get in touch, email me at time to eat the dogs. that's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. 
You can also find episodes, links, blog posts, and a lot of exploration-related stuff at timetoeatthedogs.com. Thank you.